This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. We are hearing a lot of pleas, Carol, from state officials. And one of the quotes that really jumped out to me from the governor, and I will say, I believe he is also the head of the National Governors Association. So he is really on point in dealing with the administration here uh, as well. Larry Hogan just a minute ago said, this virus is everywhere and is a threat to everyone. It does not get more stark or more plain spoken than that. Well, and I feel like this mirrors what we've been hearing from uh, the Coronavirus Task Force in terms of the spread, right? We're seeing it uh, increase uh, across the country. And so uh, the you are really hearing the pleas of various governors um, asking to have everybody shelter in place just to control this. All right, we do want to get back to certainly the virus is one of our, our is really our top story, but it is also taking a look at the labor market. And we want to get back to that eye-popping number. We knew it was going to be just the case. Let's bring back with us certainly a friend of the show. Chris Liu is former Deputy Secretary of Labor under the Obama administration, now Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center on the phone from Charlottesville, Virginia. Chris, thanks for standing by while we listen to uh, Governor Hogan. I do wonder, you know, how do you read a number like this? We knew it was going to be bad, um, you know, so much for that one strong labor market. But what's constructive about a number like this? Wow, that's hard to say. You know, I think you described it well as eye-popping. We all knew it was going to be bad, but we figured it wouldn't be that bad because it measured, uh, it was a a snapshot of the second week of March, really before a lot of the states had uh, imposed stay-at-home orders. And, you know, we knew it didn't take into account the 10 million people that have applied for unemployment the last two weeks. But to see a 700,000 drop, uh, you know, we're now at almost the lowest point of the Great Recession, and that's simply just in the first reading. Uh, I can't even imagine what April's going to look like at this point. And so why do you think, as you dig through the numbers, and you understand so well, Chris, how they're put together, what do you think is, is responsible for that? What ha- Was this just a matter of the velocity was faster in terms of uh, layoffs and job losses than we thought? What What was driving this? What's underneath it? Well, you know, about two-thirds of that 700,000 jobs lost was in leisure and hospitality. So that's restaurants, hotels. Those are, you know, one of the first things to have shut down. What I was surprised at in this number is that I think the retail industry, so, you know, shops only lost around 45,000 jobs. I say only because given the magnitude, you would expect more. Uh, That you sort of anticipate also being in the first wave of, uh, of job close uh, of layoffs, and we know, you know, just in recent days, you know, large retailers like Macy's uh, has furloughed thousands of people. So clearly, that wasn't probably included in this either. So I think what you're going to see is that retail number go up significantly, uh, and then obviously, as you know, big states like Texas, Florida have now started to shut down. You'll see the overall numbers going up. I think what concerns me a little bit is how much the ripple effect kind of continues to going out. Uh, you know, business and professional services, you know, tends to be kind of more, you know, white-collar-ish jobs. Um, that number, you know, went down about 40,000. Uh, that wasn't a huge drop, 
Uh, but I think that's sort of the next wave of when this goes. And I think anyone who thinks that this downturn is limited just to, you know, retail food services, I think is mistaken. I think the longer uh, the stay-at-home orders go in place, it's going to start to affect everyone across the entire economy. Yeah. You know, Chris, it took us a long time to recover, as you well know, from the job hit caused by the financial crisis. These are not the same crises. I understand that. But do you think we are potentially setting up for a similar scenario? You know, I think so. I think, look, I think as soon as um, the economy is sort of back up and running, whatever that means uh, and whenever that is, I think a lot of the jobs will bounce back. But, you know, we have seen over, you know, there's this expression that, you know, when you're losing jobs, you're going in an elevator and you're trying to regain the jobs, you're like walking upstairs. Um, it just takes much harder to recover. And I think my concern more broadly is a lot of these small businesses, which really are uh, the engine of job creation, may never bounce back, notwithstanding, you know, the great loan programs that are in the CARES Act. Um, they just are operating at such a narrow margin that the longer this goes on, no matter what amount of loans or grants you give to them, they won't bounce back, which means a lot of the workers who would go there uh, won't find jobs either. And so, Chris, you mentioned the CARES Act. What do you make of it? Uh, so far, we've got Speaker Pelosi and others essentially saying we just need to double down on this as the next phase of fiscal stimulus. What do you like about what's out there so far and what needs to come next? I like a lot of it. Uh, I like the small business loans that become grants. I like the uh, expanded and extended unemployment insurance, and I like the checks that go out uh, to to uh, to you know people below a certain income. And I think it's important to look at this less as a stimulus package than as relief package at this point. Mm-hmm. And we may very well need another relief package because the ultimate goal is to create a level of financial stability for people who are sitting at home, so that they can buy groceries so they can pay their rent, and they can abide by these stay-at-home orders. Um, It's not the goal for them to go out and spend the money buying stuff, but just to to sustain their existence. And I think once the economy is back up and running, I do think that there needs to be consideration as to whether some kind of stimulus package that really jumpstarts the economy is needed. And I think the lesson we learned from the Great Recession is that if you're not aggressive and ambitious enough in stimulus packages, it just extends the amount of time to recover. Exactly, right? Go big is basically what you need to do at this point. We're talking with Chris Liu, Senior Fellow, University of Virginia Miller Center, of course, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. He's joining us on this Friday on the phone from Charlottesville, Virginia. So, Chris, let's talk about this. I mean, you've seen all of this firsthand. You've been part of a White House. You've had to deal with these kinds of situations or similar, you know, certainly challenges within an administration. What should be the next step in any kind of phase four or five stimulus program? And do we need to kind of wait a little bit to see also what needs to be done once we get out of it? Or like you said, go big and do it all now. And we're going to make some mistakes, but that's okay. Yeah, I I think, and, and people are certainly erring in favor of that. I mean, you know, let's stipulate that whether it's the stimulus checks or the SBA loans, that there's going to be some amount of money that's you know, wasted or goes to people that shouldn't be getting it. Um, And I think we have to sort of accept that's okay, because the overall interest is just pumping money into the economy right now. I think we ultimately don't know what the stimulus package uh, should look like until we have a better sense about how long the economy is closed for. You know, if we were truly able to reopen this economy in a month, 
um, we, you know, there would be incredible damage, don't get me wrong, but that's significantly different if, than if this goes through the entire summer. Um, and then, you know, I, I don't think there's enough money you could pump into the economy to keep it uh, running. So I think, you know, really the public health challenges have to be resolved first, and I think we need to provide additional relief, as Speaker Pelosi suggested, and then see what the economy looks like at that point. Chris, one of the debates or certainly one of the most robust discussions it feels like we've been having, and I bet you've been having it too, is how do you delineate, how do you uh, decide where to help as it relates to companies, and how do you help when it comes to individuals? We had former Labor Secretary uh, Robert Reich on earlier this week. You know, Again, not shockingly, not a big fan of corporate bailouts. I'm sure that will come as no surprise to you. Um, But what do you make of sort of trying to navigate that between helping big companies who are ultimately big employers, but also helping individuals. How do you break it down? Yeah, I, look, I, I, where I would put my effort right now is into small businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, small businesses employ about the majority of uh, employees in this country. They're often the ones that have the, 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 the least ability to, to, to grab money at, at a given time. Um, I was struck by a statistic that restaurants on average only have about 16 days of cash buffer. So yeah. 16 days they can go without any, any customers coming in the door. Most restaurants have now exhausted that 16 days. Um, they don't have extensive lines of credit. They might um, you know, be operating uh, largely a cash-based business. Um, and so I think you need to get, we need to get money to them immediately and get them not to furlough these employees. Look, yes, the airline industry, the cruise industry uh, will suffer impacts, but I'm less concerned in the fact that they should have had more of a cash reserve, and we can have a long debate that they certainly don't have have that. Um, But they had certainly much more access to capital. But I think across the board there's going to have to be some relief to all companies, but I would certainly focus it on small businesses. Well, you know, it's interesting you talk about the restaurant sector, and I think Jason and I were thinking the same thing. We talked to Danielle Boulou this week. I mean, this is someone who is very successful, but you could hear the strains and stresses certainly, you know, in his voice, you know, the Cheesecake Factory, a a chain that when you go, there's lines around the block. Um, It's really interesting to see these establishments that you thought were probably in better shape and not necessarily the case. Yeah. And I even think, you know, their ability to reopen quickly will be challenged as well. I mean, you know, we've got an entire supply chain that's, you know, right now it's geared towards sending things to grocery stores, but that's going to have to be rerouted to, you know, restaurants to sort of get them stocked back up again. And then how do you get your workers back in there again? I mean, I sort of think about, you know, schools in, in most of the country are essentially shut down for the rest of this school year. So let's say the economy does reopen in May. You know, where do people find childcare to put their kids so that they can go back to work? So I think the economy can start back up, but it's not going to be like flipping on a switch. It's going to come on in kind of fits and spurts along the way. All right. We're talking with Chris Liu, senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center and former deputy secretary of labor under President Obama. He's joining us on the phone from Virginia. And Chris, you know, just sort of staying with the the restaurant retail industry for a second. I mean, the other thing that becomes very clear in that 16 days is, is such an amazing statistic. 
we're also talking about, in many ways, a different category of worker and in many cases, a more vulnerable lower wage worker, right? I mean, so many of us, we're very fortunate we can work from home. You know, we've got our, our great setups. We've got good internet access and things like that. But you do worry about sort of the longer term consequences of this for those workers who are, you know, living paycheck to paycheck at best. Yeah, you know, I, we, we give this statistic all the time, but I think it now has greater resonance that, you know, 40% of Americans can't come up with $400 in an emergency. And that's during, uh, before this, a time of incredible economic prosperity. And what we've realized is that there's far too many people in this country, notwithstanding low unemployment, notwithstanding stock market get, uh, records, who are living paycheck to paycheck. And, and, and we've not grown wages sufficiently across the board. You know, the federal minimum wage has not been raised in 11 years now. Um, you know, we have a social safety net that's pretty precarious in most places. And now we're frankly learning a lot about the unemployment insurance system in all 50 states. And it varies wildly, not only in your ability to apply, but in the amount of benefits that mm -hmm. you get. I mean, Mississippi has the lowest unemployment benefits. It's $213 a week. That's actually less. <laughs> than minimum wage. So we, we've eroded the safety net, and a lot of people are just barely getting by while everything like housing is getting more expensive. So um, any, any minor disruption um, would put a lot of people under, and the longer that disruption goes, you know, the more people then have to start you know, maxing out on their credit cards or um, or, or, or not paying off different loans, and that has another impact on the economy. We are finally seeing that the emperor has no clothes in terms of the massive gaps, you know, Chris, in our society. I do wonder, though, do, does this actually create some significant change that really reduce those gaps and make a difference for those people who can just barely get by or, or not even really getting by, to be quite honest? Does this actually reveal so much that politicians and everyone – think twice now about what kind of policies we really need to have in place? Or does it go back to really corporate interests being served, as we've seen for years and years and years? You know, I think back now, now that I've essentially been thinking about these issues from um, the, the beginning of the Great Recession to now, so for the better part of 10 years, um, and I think about post-Great Recession, we obviously implemented some important reforms in the housing industry as well as the financial industry. But from a social safety net perspective, the only thing we really did was to pass the Affordable Care Act. Um, and I hope when we get out of this crisis, there is, you know, a greater uh, look at, like, why is uh, income inequality at a historic high? Why is consumer debt at a pre-recession high right now? Why have we eroded the social safety net? And that we use this crisis as an opportunity to focus on some of these systemic issues because, um, you know, 3.5% unemployment and still people are living on the margins right now. Right. So 30 seconds, 40 seconds left here. Chris Liu, what does this mean for the presidential election in your estimation? You know, I don't think we know. Um, you know, obviously, uh, an important part of the president's reelection message will be uh, the economy. Uh, that will not work in his favor, but I think a lot of it will be on how well he manages this crisis, and uh, the jury's still out on that. All right. We really, really appreciate it. Always a treat to catch up Stay with you. Safe, You're so Chris. darn smart. Chris Liu, yeah. senior fellow, University of Virginia Miller Center, also the former deputy secretary of labor under President Obama. He joined us on the phone from Virginia.
It's the big question there, right? We've had unprecedented wealth leading up to the virus, right? Look about the expansion that we've seen, the the wealth created in the financial markets, and yet there are so many people continuing to struggle. And when you look at some of the numbers, it's just, it's heartbreaking. It really is. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, we've talked a lot about supply chains over the past year or so, and that was often in the context of the trade wars. Now we've been talking about it because of the impact that the virus has had as people have emptied store shelves of food staples, toilet paper, anti-back, all things Clorox. Business Week economic editor Peter Coy writes about all of the hoarding that's going on and why we do not need to do it. Peter joins us right now on the phone from New Jersey. Also with us is Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the phone from Brooklyn, New York. Um, Joel, yeah, I think this is such a relevant story because, man, anytime before I kind of locked down in my home, I went to any store, shelves were just completely empty. I just want to raise the fact that, you know, it it is, I think, a pretty human impulse. Like, if you go to a store right now, it's like, can I fit everything on this shelf into a bag? And the (laughs) answer is uh, truly, like, if if you're having that impulse, so is everyone else. And actually, calm down because there is no reason to hoard right now. Um, Food is being produced, as Peter writes in his column, um, and will continue to be produced and continue to find its way to the shelf. But you know, there is some historical precedence here, like, and, and Peter talks about this uh, World War II uh, cartoon from the from the 40s uh, that I would love to hear some more about. Peter, what, what came to mind when you found that? Right. I actually came across the reference to the cartoon in a paper by MIT uh, operations research guy, and the caption of the cartoon, it shows a guy trying to buy more cans of food than he was entitled to. Remember, this is the era of wartime rationing. So he said, I'm not hoarding. I'm just stocking up before the hoarders get here. (laughs) That's perfect. And, you know, that's exactly the attitude of a lot of people today. Uh, So it's a tricky thing for me to write about or even talk about because, in a way, when you warn people about shortages that are uh, induced by hoarding, a lot of people listening or reading say, well, uh, (laughs) I better get ahead of those hoarders and myself. So we don't want to trigger that effect. So I think the message is, as Joel said a minute ago, there is no real good reason for hoarding, especially of staples like wheat, rice, because the supplies are plentiful. Demand has not gone up. It's the same as it was. Um, and so there's, there's enough for everybody. If you take something like fresh fruits and vegetables, there's potentially more concern because it requires a lot of processing yeah. uh, and a lot of people. And so if people start getting sick, it's not that the, they'll contaminate the food. That's really not the risk. But the risk is that they'll just have to stay home and there won't be enough people to do all the harvesting, processing, packaging, and so on. Um, not a big problem yet, but sort of something we need to watch out for, which is why the right answer to that is, well, let's, let's make sure we have the right social distancing in the packing plants and so on so those people stay healthy. And so what you know, Peter, do you – go ahead. Go ahead, Joel. Yeah, no, another uh, thing that I just wanted to ask you, though, is that, you know, nations um, are actually doing a little bit of hoarding amid all this, too. What's the thinking there? Exactly. So hoarding is not just by buyers. It can be by producers. And the good example, Bloomberg News reported this back on March 24th, Kazakhstan, one of the world's biggest shippers of wheat flour, banned exports of wheat flour 
along with carrot, sugar, and potatoes. And then other examples, Vietnam, Serbia, Cambodia, Ukraine, Russia have all uh, either threatened or carried out um, export limitations. Kazakhstan backed off somewhat um, later. Uh, it changed its uh, ban into quotas, which are somewhat less harmful. But you think about it, that, that's not good for Kazakhstan either because all they do is they ruin their reputation as a reliable supplier, which will hurt them when markets return to normal, and they hurt their own farmers who are going to be deprived of that export income. Well, and Peter, one of the things you you point out in this story that I think is is really important for us to remember, and I feel like this is, to, to Carol's point, a story that Business Week has been telling from different perspectives, is the global supply chain really is kind of a finely tuned machine. So anything that disrupts it in in any significant way can, as as you point out, sort of have a, a ripple effect to, to some extent. Right. And so if you have something for which demand is fairly steady from week to week to month to month, then you'd be stupid to have giant inventories of it because you're just, you know, using up working capital needlessly. You want to have sort of just-in-time inventory. That's the way to maximize your profits. And 99% of the time works out just fine. Uh, 99% of the time we don't have a COVID-19 pandemic. Something like this comes along and it just upsets all of that rather dramatically. And it's even not just the total consumption but the channels. So, for example, we're eating less uh, food in restaurants and more at home. So a supply chain that was optimized for one mix is not optimized for the current mix. When we heard that, Carol, from Chris Liu, well, yeah. we were just talking about that. I mean, this idea that, like, changes in patterns, you know, do sort of have these uh, these unintended consequences in many ways. Yeah, mm-hmm. ab- absolutely. So what was your kind of conclusion, uh, Peter, after, you know, going on this mission, writing uh, this column? What was your takeaway? Well, we haven't really said about one thing, which is that there are people who are suffering very clearly from this uh, coronavirus pandemic in terms of food. And those are the poorest people. And mm. uh, we have uh, in Bloomberg article about people in India, you know, migrant laborers, internal migrants who no longer have jobs. And they're living from hand to mouth in the best of times. Now they have no income coming in. There could be starvation. So I think it's important for us in the West, uh, you know, wealthy nations, to keep in mind that things could be much, much worse than the inconvenience of having to scour shelves for, you know, the the preferred food of the day. Right. I am concerned, I will say, we've talked a lot on air with Andy Brown and uh, of uh, Bloomberg New Economy about these emerging markets in particular where folks really will be cut off from things like food supplies and just fighting the virus is going to be much trickier. And I do hope that somehow in a world where there's been so much pushback, Peter, against globalization uh, and even global coordination, I mean, we're going to need to be able to help uh, some of these nations going forward, there's going to be a need for global co- coordination to make sure that those people are, are helped out. For sure, for sure. Globalization on net has been a very good thing for all of humanity. And the idea that we're going to retreat behind national walls now is, is, could be one of the lasting negative consequences of this pandemic. 
Right. You know, Peter, one other question that I have, like somewhat related to that, you know, is is the nature of supply chains to all of this, and you know, the the food supply chain, you know, that's not typically a, a supply chain that we we think about even um, being um, in jeopardy at all. But like at, when you talk to your people, wh- how are they viewing the integrity of the su- supply chain, the food supply chain specifically right now? And Peter, we just have about fifteen seconds here. Yeah. Well, if the pandemic interrupts supply chains because uh, transportation is bottlenecked or people are bottlenecked, that's, that could uh, ca- cause a mess. That's why governments need to step in and say, let's make sure the food supply chain is preserved. All right. Going to leave it there. Folks, thank you so much. Have a good and safe weekend. Jill Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week on the phone from Brooklyn. Peter Coy, economics editor at Bloomberg Business Week on the phone from New Jersey. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. We're both just eager to get to I am next so guest. excited uh, about this story, I have to say. I was all over this. Do you want well, to talk about it? Yeah, well, it's one that also continues, Jason, as you know, to gain momentum. It's about a Georgian, a Georgia Republican senator, a selling of some shares before the president announced a ban on travel, European travel to the U.S. And it also comes on top of news reports last month um, about this same senator, her sales and purchases of some other stocks. So let's get into it with Greg Farrell. He's investigative reporter for the legal enforcement team at Bloomberg News. He joins us on the phone in New York City. So set the scene, Greg. Remind us who we're talking about and what's going on. What's at issue here? So uh, we're talking about uh, Senator Kelly Leffler, a senator, Republican senator from Georgia, but she was just appointed. So she just basically was sworn into the Senate like on January 1st to replace Johnny Isaacson, who was retiring. And um, she's a very interesting woman, very accomplished in her own right, and she's also married to the chief executive officer of the uh, Intercontinental Exchange, uh, the the parent company of the New York Stock Exchange. Which makes it even more interesting. (laughs) Yes. So she has – she worked there. She was uh, head of communications and eventually – uh, was put in charge of a uh, spinoff that, that dealt with, uh, you know, Bitcoin, digital currency. So she has executive experience, a lot of experience with the financial markets and the rules of the financial markets. She's wealthy in her own right, but of course he's worth more than five hundred million, four hundred million, according to Bloomberg's database of his shareholdings. Never mind other assets that they have. So as a couple, they're worth more than five hundred million dollars. She just joins the Senate in uh, early January. She's on the Intelligence Committee. And she and Senator Richard Burr uh, of North Carolina, among others, got an early briefing, uh, background briefing, uh, or a briefing just on how serious the coronavirus was around January 24th. So this is well before early March when it really sort of caught hold uh, the public imagination over here in the U.S. And, um, you know, the story last month was that Senator Burr, you know, who you know didn't have much of a track record of a stock player, sold a lot of his stocks, particularly hotel companies, you know, in mid-February uh, before this became widely known. And there's uh, he's called for an ethics investigation in the Senate. There is one, and there appears to be at least an SEC investigation and possibly a Justice Department investigation as well. Now, so, Kelly Leffler. Yeah, yes. go ahead. So no, Kelly keep Leffler, going. I'm so spun up about this story, but keep going, Greg. So the uh, the Senate... Personal financial disclosures have to come out, you know, every 45 days or so, or within 45 days of you you doing anything a significant transaction. So that's how we all found out a month ago about the transactions from early February. Now we've seen uh, a whole batch of things that were due to come out on March 31st uh, about other transactions in late February and early March, and. Um, 
Senator Burr, he was done, so there was nothing new there. Um, there was still a, continue, a lot of activity uh, in Senator Leffler. And uh, basically, she, she, I think she wanted to get ahead of it. She shared some of the details of her trades with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the Wall Street Journal, and, of course, Bloomberg. And um, the details shared, uh, you know, were interesting because they share more than just usually this, you just have to disclose it was somewhere between 15,000 and 50,000 or between 50,000 and 100,000 was invested. But she gave us, you know, uh, granular detail of uh, the trades. And a couple of things caught our attention. Uh, first of all, that there was enough, you know, there was enough bad trades that she could justifiably say that, you know, there's no inside information. Her, in particular, she has said, I should have said this up front, uh, a month ago, and again, she reiterated and has reiterated that she has several outside financial advisors. They make all the decisions. She doesn't consult with them, nor does her husband. They just, you know, do this on their own. So with that as a backdrop, um, it's clear from a lot of the trades, you know, that uh, some are good, some are bad, that there was no sort of clear, you know, clear line that all these trades turned out to be winners, which would be very suspicious. Right. Um, the fact that I, I focused on one element of that that I just found kind of unusual, that, you know, brokers for this very wealthy U.S. senator were engaged, were selling put options, um, you know, in uh, late February into early March. It's just like, I was wondering why you would do that. Right. It's, I guess, mildly bullish insofar as you're willing to own the stock, even if you end up having to, in a very down market, um, have to buy it above the uh, the price you, uh, you know, the, the market price. Um, but it just seemed kind of an anomaly. And I, I was wondering, like, what kind of other, yeah, I guess, you know, I, I was wondering, frankly, if pre- before she became a senator, there, there were like short sales, which right. are also quite legal, but it wouldn't look good for a U.S. senator to have, you know, be a short seller. And that's um, and that's at the core of this, right? I mean, I have to say, Greg, as you can probably tell by the tone of my voice, and I am a uh, longtime Georgian, and so I, I think that's part of the reason that, that I, I'm a little agitated about this as well. I mean, it, there may be nothing ultimately illegal about this. This will be investigated, but it just doesn't sit right. I mean, it really just doesn't to have someone – who is in a position to get information that other people don't, even if it's directional information, even if it's not specific, to essentially be able to I- engage in this. As you talk to watchdogs and you talk to other observers, what what are they saying about this? Again, not necessarily letter of the law, but spirit of the law here. Yes, and, uh, uh, and to that point, absolutely, the big picture, let's assume – um, that what Senator Leffler says is absolutely 100% correct, and this is all done by her very professional, skilled advisors outside. Um, you know, still, the buying and selling of individual stocks by someone who's in a position to know much more than the average investor, you know, looks bad. Uh, yeah. There's a reason the Stock Act was passed in 2012. It was after a public outcry spearheaded by a fantastic 60 Minutes episode, which you might remember. Yes. yes. Basically, nailing, you know, John Boehner and a bunch of other senior congressional officials, who, including Nancy Pelosi, who like uh, you know, like made one buy, one big buy, and it turned out brilliantly because of the you know, Obamacare or because of some other major congressional act that was coming down the pike. It was like clearly inside information, but but you know, it was not illegal. That's why the Stock Act was passed. There is, however, I want to add uh, one other element to this that my colleague Billy House down in, in Washington D.C focused on, and it was, it was brilliant, is of all these trades, the ones that we highlighted in the story about something called booking holdings, yes. 
Um, we had the CEO on our show yesterday. Yeah, we talked to the CEO yesterday. Oh, okay, right. Isn't that the old Priceline? And, yes. Uh, basically, yes. all these websites that make travel uh, easier. So, the, the you know, uh, Senator Leffler's outside advisors, in their wisdom, uh, you know, bought $49,000 worth of this stock in, um, like, Late, late February, February 26th or something like that. This is just as the wave's about to crash. They're buying into a you know, booking travel company. Um, in the next week, um, or I got the dates wrong, they buy uh, on March 6th. And over the course of the next few days, Kelly Leffler's in touch and on Air Force One with Trump. Um, and Trump is about to announce on March 11th a ban or at least a significant scaling back or you know, barriers to entry from people coming from Europe. So that's going to really whack right. the uh, the tourism business. And so on March 10th and March 11th, you know, the advisors, like, this is almost like a bad day trade. They got out, you know, with whatever was left of their shirts of the booking holdings uh, investment. They they basically put in 49 and they got out, like, you know, 46, and it was it was heading south. So it was just, that looked weird. Why would you yeah. have a senator be, have, like, a day trade, like, Five days later, you know, buy in and then get the hell out five days later. It just looks really bad. Exactly. So, it looks very suspicious, right? Because it's such a quick trade. Yeah. Quick and that's trade. what it and all she come... was in proximity yeah. to the president Correct. right during that period of time. Yeah. Uh, so, right. It's the, the facts aren't good, even if everything's you know, squeaky clean. Let's, if the SEC does investigate this, they will look at phone records. They'll yep. try to determine if there's any contact between the senator and the advisors in that period. And her husband is the CEO of Intercontinental Exchange, parent, yep. you know, parent of the New York Stock Exchange. And this goes to Jason. You and I talk about this. There are certain positions where you have to be above and beyond when it comes to ethics and your moves. Yeah, Just, exactly. Exactly. All right, yeah. Greg Farrell, thank you so much. Uh, this was a story that we had to do. We always appreciate your so just very methodical uh, way of telling it. It's a great piece. Check it out about Georgia Senator Kelly Leffler selling some shares. And it just doesn't sit right with a lot of people. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.